Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexum Press. This is the Lexum Press website to receive 30% off of Kevin Van Hooser's latest. Hearers and doers. To purchase your copy, simply go to lexumpress.com slash Van Hooser to order your copy for 30% off today. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Dr. John Frame. Dr. Frame, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Really good to be with you, Dave, and with your listeners. Thank you, sir. Uh, can you uh, catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Well, I retired two years ago, and uh, but the RTS, the, where I've taught for many years, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, they've been gracious enough to let me continue using my office. So I come to my office every morning, and I'm still... Uh, setting up a, a publishing projects that I began some years ago, and uh, uh, We Are All Philosophers is the book we're talking about now, and uh, that's being published by Lexham Press, and so I'm writing back and forth with them and corresponding with other people. I'm involved today uh, also uh, in a project with Steve Childers, a colleague of mine who is the president of Pathway learning, and he's trying to set up a version of uh, our theology, which uh, is in simple language that could be used with uh, uh, church planters all around the world, uh, can be translated into different languages, and uh, uh, can be uh, uh, given to people who uh, have no seminary training, but it's on a seminary level, so... uh, uh, we're hoping to uh, elevate the knowledge of God's world, word all over the world. And that's the main thing. My, my wife and I are, are healthy, and uh, our five kids are scattered around the country, and uh, we see them from time to time. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you for, thank you for sharing about uh, what's going on with you, sir. Can you uh, please tell us about your book, We Are All Philosophers, uh, A Christian Introduction to Seven Fundamental Questions, why you wrote it, and uh, how you're going to hope it's received here when it comes out? Well, uh, in 2015, I published a big fat book called uh, uh, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. I've taught philosophy for like 50 years, and uh, after that was published, I thought, well, it might be a good idea to uh, write a a smaller, uh, more popular version of uh, a philosophy book to sort of introduce philosophy, and particularly Christian philosophy, to uh, people who uh, have not studied it before. And so uh, uh, that's what this new book is about. It's a short book. It's uh, less than 100 pages, and uh, it's uh, an introduction to uh, philosophical issues. Uh, It's not a history. I don't uh, start with the Greeks and work up to the present, although I do refer to a lot of uh, philosophers uh, down through the years. Uh, The main point of it is to discuss some questions that are usually considered to be 
philosophical and show how these are related to uh, God and the Bible and uh, his uh, uh, redemption in Christ. Uh, everybody, it's a, it's a really good it's a really good book. It's a short book. You know, Dr. Frame, you're, you're known for your long, voluminous books, and, and so uh, I, I encourage our listener, listeners uh, that listen to this to, uh, to pick it up. It's, it's really thoughtful and well done, so thank you as always, sir. Thank you. I, I've learned to write short books in my old age. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, uh, why should Christians be interested in reading and studying philosophy? Well, uh, philosophy, I define it as the... Uh, formulation and defense of a worldview. Now, most people have some general idea of how the world is put together, what the whole world is like. And some people are materialists. They think that the world is nothing more than the little particles, atoms and motion and stuff like that. Other people believe uh, uh, that the world is a creation of God, and God is involved in the world. Still, other people believe that the, the church is, or I'm sorry, that, that, that the world is a uh, an illusion, a kind of uh, uh, a kind of dream that we are all in, and uh, so they they try. Uh, philosophy is uh, the name we give uh, when people try to explain their worldviews, and when people try to defend their worldviews. And of course, uh, I believe in, in Jesus Christ, so I, I hold to a Christian worldview, and therefore I hold to a Christian philosophy. And this book that I've written is uh, a formulation on a defense of Christian philosophy, but it's uh, interacting with a, a lot of other kinds of philosophy that have been suggested down through the years. What, what would you say to those, that's a really good answer, what would you say to those who, you know, uh, they they read Colossians 2, I think it's 8, and they say, oh, well, well then Christians, because of that verse, shouldn't be engaged in philosophy. What, what would you say to them? Well, Paul there is using the term philosophy a little bit differently from the way I have just used it, and a little differently from the way that the most people define it now, but uh, Paul was dealing with a real problem. Uh, there was an ideology called Gnosticism, which had developed in the church at Colossae and other places in the world, and uh, it was really messing up a lot of people. And, uh, and it's, it, it, was, it used some language that people confused with the gospel, and uh, Paul, uh, one of the things he's trying to do in Colossians is to draw a clear distinction between the gospel of Jesus and the uh, uh, teachings of Gnosticism, uh, which he calls philosophy. So uh, uh, that's uh, so basically what he's saying is stay away from bad philosophy, stay away from Gnosticism, stay away from philosophy that distorts the truth and distorts the, the gospel. Uh, and I would say that too. I, I think that the, most of the philosophy down through the centuries has been non-Christian. It's been an attempt to substitute a, a false ideology for the true gospel. And part of the point of my book is to discourage people from being caught up in those false uh, ideologies. 
But uh, in order to do that, I think you need to uh, set up these false uh, philosophies in contrast uh, with a true worldview and a true ideology, and that would be the uh, uh, philosophy that we derive from the scriptures. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really helpful. Very helpful. Um, how does uh, how does philosophy rate, relate to theology? Well, philosophy and theology uh, discuss a lot of the same problems and a lot of the same topics. They discuss uh, God's existence. They discuss how uh, uh, wisdom uh, should be gained. They, they discuss how we should live ethics. Uh, and uh, so a lot of those uh, topics uh, come up in my book, uh, and uh, uh, basically theology is the work of understanding and applying the teaching of Scripture to our lives, as Paul says, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, and so as we read the Bible, uh, we uh, form a worldview and we uh, defend that worldview when we're presenting the gospel to other people, and uh, we seek to apply that worldview to uh, all the different uh, thing, uh, areas of life. And so uh, uh, that's, that's what uh, a, a Christian philosophy is, uh, uh, a philosophy that's informed by Scripture. Yeah, that's good. Are there are there particular Christian philosophers that you found helpful, and if so, who are they, and why have they been so beneficial to you? Well, as you go down through the years, uh, I, I get a lot of help, of course, from Saint Augustine, a uh, great uh, saint and a great uh, theologian, and also very knowledgeable about philosophy. Uh, way back in the fifth century, he he really knew uh, what was going on. Uh, later, I, I think uh, Saint Anselm of Canterbury is a is a uh, thinker that uh, has influenced me a great deal. Uh, after that, uh, you know, you come down to the present day period. I'm sort of a disciple of Cornelius Van Til, who taught at the Westminster Seminary for about forty or fifty years. Uh, he was my teacher in the way back in the sixties. And uh, anything that you can find to read by Van Til is really excellent and challenging and biblical and helpful. And a number of his disciples are are writing today, people like uh, William Edgar and Scott Oliphant and James Anderson and uh, and, uh, others. And and I do uh, find some benefit uh, among uh, some writers who are not strictly Van Tilian, but uh, who have... uh, written uh, in a stimulating way about various philosophical topics like uh, Al- Alvin Plantinga and uh, and uh, Nicholas Woltersdorf. Oh, that's that's really fascinating. Um, how, how you you said that Anselm has has influenced you. How how has he uh, how has he influenced your your thinking? Well, that's a long story, but uh, of course Anselm is famous for. Uh, what is called the ontological argument for the existence of God. And basically what uh, Anselm does in that argument is to say, uh, what uh, what is your idea of perfection? What would it be to have a perfect person or a perfect being? And uh, however you answer that, you basically have to say, well, if, if this being is perfect... 
then it must exist because existence is a perfection. And uh, that that sounds a little hokey, but when you think it through, it's really very uh, hard to get around uh, if you believe that the material world is the highest perfection then, of course, it couldn't be the highest perfection if it doesn't exist. So it has to exist. Uh, but, of course, Anselm believed that the God of the Bible is the highest perfection. And so for him, uh, uh, that's the uh, uh, God must exist because uh, he has all of the perfections and existence is one of those perfections. Well, Anselm develops that argument. It isn't just... Uh, by itself, but he develops it in a context of a lot of biblical uh, teaching and understanding, and uh, uh, I just, uh, I wrote a dissertation on that years ago, and I, I really love the guy. Mm, that's really fascinating. So, so while we're on that whole Anselm thing, are you for making arguments for the existence of God, or not, or, you know, how does that relate to being presuppositional? Should we as presuppositionists believe, disbelieve in making, or, or not make arguments for God, or what do you think? Well, I'm usually considered to be a presuppositionalist, and uh, uh, some people think the presuppositionalists don't worry about arguments, but that's not true, of course, uh, if you read Van Til. Uh, Van Til's writings are just full of arguments, but uh, they have to be good arguments. They have to be arguments that uh, presuppose the truth of the scriptures. Uh, any argument is a, is a set of words that begins with, a, with an assumption, it begins with a premise, and then by logic you reason from that premise to a conclusion. Well, the conclusion is that uh, God exists and Christianity is true, uh, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> but the uh, uh, premise is the, is the thing that you have to worry about. How do you come to know that Christianity is true? And some people say, well, you, you never, never use the Bible because uh, uh, we can't agree on, on whether the Bible is true or not. Well, I believe, as a presuppositionalist, that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth for human beings. So you can never set the Bible aside. But sometimes it's helpful just to look at the arguments that other people bring bring up and, uh, and see, are these arguments consistent? Are they uh, factually accurate? Uh, uh, how close are they to the biblical truth? And so on and so forth. So... Uh, I engage in that kind of reasoning. Yeah, I think that's uh, really good, uh, and I especially appreciate you saying, "Yeah, yeah, we as Christians uh, and presuppositionalists, we we make arguments. How how else can we get to the root of the of the of the issue? I mean, to ask right. a question in some way is to make an argument. You're you're the, and if you're framing the question in the right way, you're actually making an argument. Um, in in your in your question, you know, because you're trying yeah. to you're you're trying to get to the to the when you're talking to the atheist and the atheist makes a claim and you ask a specific question, you're trying to guide the conversation and, and so therefore you're making an argument. That's right. I mean, we, we could get into, you know, then then people say, oh, well, it, related to this, people say, oh, well, Christians aren't intellectual and it's like, wait a minute, wait, a, what, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I literally don't know what you're, what you're saying at this point because 
Um, have you ever read Calvin or Owen or any of these guys that made serious arguments and uh, considered uh, very serious, uh, heady intellects or uh, somebody like yourself or, or in many, many others? I mean, uh, it just it just that that just drives me batty. It's just bad. It's like, really? Really? You want to say that? You want to say that? Really? Like, that's what you want to argue? Like, it's it's nonsense. Yeah, I've been there, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Preaching to the choir here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, moving on. How, how does uh, asking the question, what is everything made of, relate to a, a Christian worldview? Well, that's the uh, first chapter of my book, uh, What Is Everything Made Of? And that's, that's sort of the question that got the history of philosophy started, because if you go back to the ancient Greeks, uh, you find uh, at the very beginning of the history, you find some one guy saying everything is made out of water, and somebody else says it's all made out of air, and somebody else says it's all made out of fire. And uh, what are they doing there? Well, they're, they're trying to ask very general questions about the nature of the world, and that's uh, what philosophy does. It's very abstract. It's very general. We, we often ask uh, uh, what are the ingredients of a cake or something, but philosophers ask what are the ingredients in the whole world. And uh, So they're trying to make very general statements, and I discussed that in the first uh, chapter of the book and uh, see if they've made any progress in uh, telling me uh, uh, what the whole world is made out of, and basically I come to the conclusion that they they don't, but they, they don't know. They're just kind of playing around, and uh, uh, nobody knows uh, you know, what the world is actually made of, but they pretend that philosophy is able to, uh, is able to give us that knowledge. Uh, in the final analysis, it's only God who knows what the world is made of, because God created the world, and uh, God uh, has spoken to us of the scriptures, and uh, so the important thing is not to try to figure out for ourselves what the world is made of, but rather to accept God's authority as the maker of everything and uh, uh, take uh, uh, take this of his uh, authority of his word. Yeah, that's, that's a really good answer. Uh, from a Christian worldview perspective, what is free will and how important is it to get a good and sound understanding of this idea for the Christian? Well, that's the second chapter, by God, by uh, uh, no surprise. Uh, the uh, concept of free will is the idea that, uh, you know, here I, I'm sitting with a pen in my hand, and I could lift it up if I choose to, and I can leave it on the table if I choose to do that. So I'm free to lift it up, and I'm free to put it on the table. Well, of course, we have free will in that sense. But uh, that, that's an ordinary uh, kind of meaning of freedom that we uh, talk about uh, in ordinary life. But what philosophers do is they try to talk about a, a kind of freedom, and it's sometimes called libertarian freedom. Uh, it's a kind of freedom in which there is no causation at all. That is, uh, whether I pick up the pen or put it down, uh, I'm free only if there's no cause. Uh, even if there's no cause within me, uh, my movement of muscles, 
or no cause outside me, my motives for picking it up, uh, or no cause above me, God's uh, decree influencing what I do. So the libertarian tries to say that freedom is the absence of any causation at all, and I don't think that kind of freedom exists. Uh, if you ask me, when I pick up the pen, if you ask me, was that a free action, normally I don't have any trouble saying, of course, yes, it was a free action. But if he says, uh, oh, well, is it an action without any cause? And I say, I, I certainly don't know. I don't know all the causes of everything that I do. Uh, only God knows that. So what, what the theme that we keep seeing here is that philosophers, at least non-Christian philosophers, they're trying to substitute their own intellect uh, for the uh, uh, plan of God. They want to uh, uh, identify the world without consulting God. They want to talk about our free will without consulting God. And I'm trying to show how, how terrible that is if you take that principle, uh, trying to uh, understand the world without God, uh, you, you wind up uh, uh, with chaos. You wind up without any answer at all. Yeah, that's really good. Um, you, you know, I think, I think just, just to add to that, I think people, people want absolute, uh, absolute uh, free will. But nobody is absolutely free. Um, you're you're never absolutely free if you have a boss to do what you want to do. You you can't you know sit and surf the web when you have a boss. So so you don't have absolute free will even there. Um, and and how much more true is that with with God? God dictates right. the terms. He's Lord. He's the Creator and Lord, and and He owns us by by virtue of that. So uh, we owe our lives and our allegiance to Him and, and to worship Him. You know, not out of duty, but out of out of delight. Just to be clear. So yeah, I mean. The argument breaks down. You you have a boss, and and uh, he tells you what to do. Otherwise, you don't get paid, and you don't have a job. So so there is no absolute free will. It's just it's. But then you have people that functionally believe that, and they and they do whatever they want, and yet they forget they don't have. You're going to be people. People object to free the idea of. Really, I think they object uh, in, in their heart at the heart level to free will. But but everybody believes in free will. They just don't want to be accountable for their free will, and that's where I. Think think that people well, that's, that's a very good point so so if somebody if somebody uh let's let's make it practical the, the guy that's looking at at porn for example uh sure he has uh he has uh he's making a choice to to look at that uh for example the uh the, that porn now now we don't know all the reasons for what's causing that what's feeding that and all that but but uh, what what he doesn't understand or the man or the woman doesn't understand is that they are they are going to be accountable for what they've put into their body and and that I'm just illustrating that by using that example to say, hey, we are owned by God and we're going to be held accountable for our free will. So free will can't be absolute and it never has been. So I just don't know why people don't believe in this divine sovereignty. Yes, right. Well, that's, uh, that's true. And uh, our free choices, of course, have a lot to do with our uh, moral responsibility before God. Yeah. How, how does asking the question, how can I know anything at all, help Christians to understand the idea of knowledge, both generally and specifically? Well, uh, the question of knowledge, of course, is important to philosophy. There's a kind of a sub-discipline called epistemology. That's the study of knowledge. 
and that's something that philosophers have always been very interested in. That's a big thing in the Bible, too. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about how we know God, and uh, uh, the Bible talks a lot about wisdom and about foolishness. So uh, in the book, I explore uh, all of this, and we have to go back to the very beginning and ask, uh, how is it possible for us to know anything at all? Now, uh, part of it is, uh, and this is what the philosophers discuss, part of it is that God has given us the gifts of reason and uh, sensation, what we see and hear and taste and touch. And uh, the question is, how are all of these related to one another? But what I want to say is that uh, besides our reason and our senses, we also have to uh, have some kind of personal relationships if we're going to know anything. For example, if I go to school and my parents have taught me that the, uh, uh, that the sun revolves around the earth, <laughs> and then my teachers tell me that, no, that's wrong, the earth revolves around the sun, I, ha I uh, as a kid, say I'm five years old, I don't have the ability to uh, do the measurements and figure out who's right and who's wrong. I have to decide who I trust, mm. and it's a matter of personal trust. And, uh, and then if you decide, well, I trust my teachers on this one, uh, then why should I trust my teachers? Uh, what, what the authority is there that the, uh, authorizes me to give trust to my teachers and why how do I trust that person and so on and so forth so you can work it all the way back as philosophers do and uh, ultimately you, you need somebody in the universe who can set the conditions of uh, knowledge who can tell me who I should trust and who I shouldn't and that uh, being that must be somebody I trust that being uh, must be a person uh, that I can trust well that's God of course <laughs> and so what I'm saying is you can't really uh, claim to know anything unless you know God and unless uh, God is worthy of trust that is uh, that's so well said well Dr. Frame how should Christians think about the problem of evil in particular when many Christians already question or doubt whether God is good at all how should we help Christians who think this way well the problem of evil is the problem of uh, uh, how can the uh, there be a good God, uh, how can God be good, and how can God be all-powerful uh, when there's so much evil in the world? We know in the Bible that God uh, hates evil, and we know that he's going to judge evil, and we know that uh, he's powerful enough to stop it when he wants to. So why doesn't he? And people bring up these very uh, sad, tragic uh, uh uh, stories of things that really happen in our world and uh, ask, well, doesn't this disprove the existence of a good God? And I go back to the Bible. I, I always go back to the Bible when these questions come up because I think the, the Bible really speaks to uh, every philosophical question that people raise. And in the Bible, uh, it says uh, several things. One, it says that uh, uh, there are lots of mysteries. There are lots of things in this world that we do not understand and we cannot understand. And God is not obligated to give us answers to these 
questions. And often these questions are very deep. Uh, they're very hard to answer. Uh, so you would expect uh, things to come up like the problem of evil that just wrench our souls. But uh, if you're going to believe in God, you've got to believe that the, uh, God is higher than we, that God has an understanding uh, of the world that's far deeper than our own, and uh, that uh, we just have to trust him. Now, that's the first thing that the Bible says about evil. Uh, the second thing that it says about evil is that God is making all things, and this is even the most horrible things, even the death of a child, even the Holocaust. Uh, God makes all the things, all the events of this world, work together for good. That is, that the, there's going to be a good that is deeper and broader than all of the evils that we can imagine. Now, it's hard for us to think about, but uh, just remember how big God is. Remember uh, how much he has, uh, uh, how he is in total control of history, and he is able to make all the terrible things that happen work together for his good purpose. And there are lots of examples of this in the Bible. There's the example of, of Joseph, uh, who was uh, thrown into slavery, and yet this was the way in which God brought uh, 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 salvation to Israel in the midst of a famine. And uh, the biggest example, of course, is the example of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus died on the cross. That's hard to imagine how how uh, God himself could endure the awful pain and the awful injustice of crucifixion. And uh, in a way, that's the worst evil that there's ever been in the history of the world. And yet, uh, it is the event which has brought about the most good uh, that there's ever been in the history of the world. Because Jesus died on the cross, he has brought uh, uh, forgiveness uh, for the sins of all his people and new fellowship with God that's going to last through all eternity. So those two points at least, uh, and then the, there's the third point that the, you find in the book of Revelation, I often refer to this, it's uh, Revelation uh, 15, where uh, people are standing around God's throne at the end of time, and they're singing, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. So all of us, one day, uh, maybe we can't do this now because maybe our, we're full of doubts and maybe we're full of worries about uh, uh, how God will answer the, the problem of evil. But when we're standing around God's throne and singing, just and true are your ways, King of the Ages, uh, there will be no problem of evil. Uh, God will be working in our hearts so that we will no longer have any temptation to criticize God uh, for what has happened in history. And I find that's a, a satisfying uh, way to deal with the problem of evil. It doesn't take away from the pain. It doesn't take away from the horror of it, but uh, it indicates uh, 
uh, how all of that is related to the greatness of God. I love that answer because what it does is it, it, it reframes the whole entire issue. Instead of accusing God and saying, God, why are you good? Or why, why do bad things happen to good people? It says uh, it, it starts in the right place with understanding God. And, and right. that is just such a... That that's where I go personally as well. Where when I'm dealing with somebody who is asking these tough questions, they're they're wanting to know, hey, I'm I'm hurting, and and why is this happening to me? Why why do these things keep happening? We live in a fallen world. We are sinners by nature and by choice. You know, it's right. it's our we did it. We did it. It wasn't God. It was it was we who who did this. And it, this is why Christ has come for you, and this is why you can trust Him because. He didn't initiate this. He didn't cause it. It's we who did it. And and God responded and he initiated and he, he came and, and did all he did and um and has finished insufficient work and he's he's coming again and, and that should give you all the reason in the world if you're facing a, a, a tremendous suffering or any suffering or any trial or or uh, or you're happy or anything that, that should cause you to, to rejoice and lift your head and, and praise God for his grace. Right, right. Well, what are some of the most significant Christian philosophers in the history of the church? Well, I answered earlier uh, your question about uh, which ones had the biggest influence on me, and so I, I would kind of repeat some of that uh, oh. uh, here. I, of course, uh, have the highest regard for St. Augustine way back in the 5th century, certainly a philosopher of the first rank. I mentioned uh, St. Anselm and his... Uh, his ontological argument. Uh, as you move on down through the years, uh, I think uh, John Calvin was a very great uh, thinker and certainly very much aware of philosophy, although he didn't talk about philosophers very much. Uh, as you move into the 20th century, you have Van Til, whom I referred to before, and I think that his work is still very valuable, although he died uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, I mentioned uh, Bill Edgar and Scott Oliphant and James Anderson, and uh, I uh, uh, and I get a special uh, help from uh, Vern Poitras, who's a good friend of mine, P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S. -S. He has a PhD in mathematics from Harvard as well as a, a doctorate in the New Testament studies that was taught at Westminster Seminary for many years. And he's uh, very knowledgeable about philosophy and about the uh, worldview and about uh, uh, all kinds of issues uh, in that area. He's, he's written maybe 20, 23 books. So uh, and just look him up on Amazon. Anything that he's written would be really helpful for you. Yeah, Dr. Poitras is uh, brilliant like you, sir. So I would commend that to our listeners as well, for sure. Uh, what what book? Yes, sir. Uh, what would you recommend outside of uh, this book, uh, We Are All Philosophers, for a Christian understanding of philosophical issues? Well, of course, you can always read my great big book on philosophy, which is uh, <laughs> it's called The History of Western Philosophy and Theology, and it was published in 2015 by uh, uh, P&R, uh, Presbyterian and Reformed uh, Publishing Company, and uh, I still think that's a pretty, uh, pretty good book. I published two books uh, in 2018 uh, from Lexham called... Uh, 
one of them is called Christianity Considered, although that's not the title that I prefer. I, I send it to them with the title A New Mind, which will give you a better idea of the content of it. Uh, then the other one was uh, uh, Nature's Case for God. It's uh, If you go out into the look around at the world, try to do a natural theology, uh, you find a lot of things about uh, God by looking at the created world, and uh, that's called natural theology, and that's part of philosophy, so uh, you can uh, get that. Both uh, Christianity Considered and Nature's Case for God are uh, published by Lexham Press, as is uh, We Are All Philosophers. Uh, so uh, those are some of the books that I think are, are uh, helpful. Well, very good, and, and people can listen to the our conversations on Christianity Considered and, and the other book you mentioned, so I would encourage our listeners to do that if they haven't already. Um, well, Dr. Frame, there's a lot that we could really cover in this uh, t- about this topic, and in this interview, we you know cover quite a bit of ground. Um, just as we wrap up this conversation, do you have any takeaways? Well, my main takeaways from the whole my whole study of philosophy is that uh, uh, human thinking is part of First uh, Corinthians ten thirty one, where Paul says, "Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." And he could have said, uh, "Even if you're thinking, even if you're doing philosophy, because that's part of the whatever." And uh, so uh, if you're if you're inclined, and I think it's a good ambition to try to understand the world as a scientist or a philosopher, uh, the first thing in your mind has to be uh, to be faithful to God, to be faithful to God's word, uh, to be faithful to Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, that uh, that's what I'm urging people to do in in this book and all the books that. Uh, that I publish. Mm, wonderful. I love it. Well, Dr. Frame, uh, one last question. Where can people uh, go to find out more online about, about your work or, or even on social media? Well, I don't do a whole lot of stuff online, but uh, I do have a website. Uh, uh, it's called uh, uh, poitrus. Uh, dot com and I share that uh, I'm sorry it's not com it's org <laughs> www.frame-poitrus.org and uh, there I, I share that website with uh, Vern Poitrus whom I mentioned a while ago and uh, you can find a lot of his articles and a lot of my articles uh, there online and uh, uh, there are also some uh, of some uh, uh, audio lectures that are available uh, through Reformed Theological Seminary on their uh, website. They have an iTunes uh, tie-in there, and uh, in, in my uh, history of Western philosophy and theology, there's a, a chart that uh, shows which lecture to listen to online as you read each chapter of the book. So that's one way that you can... Uh, get more of, uh, of my work, but probably the best thing to do is to go on uh, Amazon, because I've, uh, I've published about 23 books over the course of my life, and um, most of those are still in print, and uh, most of them are still available, so I'd encourage
encourage you to just look up my name there and uh, see what uh, might uh, mesh with your particular interests. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I encourage our listeners to do that and to read your work. It's it's excellent. So thank you for that. And uh, as always, Dr. Frame, I, I appreciate uh, the time that you've given to me and, and the time that you that uh, you put into this and um, hope that you have a, a wonderfully blessed rest of your day. Well, same to you, Dave, and thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed this uh, conversation. Thank you, sir. I'd like to thank Lexum Press for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to visit the Lexum Press website at lexumpress.com slash vanhooser to receive 30% off of Kevin Van Hooser's book, Heroes and Doers. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.